Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Browse here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. Tucked in between two of the most important episodes in this week's Parsha, when Jacob deceives and really betrays his brother Esau, tricking him into giving him um, the birthright. And then the episode that Evan spoke so powerfully about when Jacob approaches his father Isaac, dressed now as his brother Esau, and receives his blessing. In between these two incredible stories, something very interesting happens we learn that there's a famine in the land. And Isaac picks up his family, his wife Rebecca and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and moves them from their home to live in a place called Gerar, which is in central Canaan along the Mediterranean. So you can uh, imagine where it is. And it's the land of the Philistines. And when he gets there, Isaac and his family, he does something very strange. He pretends that his wife, Rebecca, his beloved wife, and, and by the way, the first time we learn about romantic love in the Torah is in the relationship of Isaac and Rebecca. We know that he, he loves her deeply, but he pretends that his wife, Rebecca, is not his wife, but actually is his sister. And, um, and, and Avimelech, who's the king um, of the Philistines, one day, it says in the Torah, he sees Isaac and Rebekah behaving more like a, like a married couple than like siblings. So you can imagine what he witnesses. I don't know how that happened in public. But anyway, he's very angry. Avimelech grows really angry at Isaac. And he says to him, you lied to me. You came here with your wife and you told me that she was your sister. Someone could have taken her for themselves. And then imagine what would have happened. It would have been a disaster, he said. You lied to me. And Isaac responded saying, it's true that I lied to you, but the reason, I did it for a good reason. I did it because I was afraid that you would kill me if you thought she was my wife, because she's so beautiful that if you thought, saw such a beautiful woman, you'd kill me. And it's, a, it's really a terrible story. And there's good reason why Evan focused on the story that came after and why we hint a little bit on the story that came before, but not that piece in the middle. Because what do you do with that terrible story in which Rebecca, our matriarch, is completely denied agency, her life is endangered, we see Isaac's willingness to lie to Avimelech and his willingness to put Rebekah in danger. And we see Avimelech, the, the king of the Philistines, who is more righteous than our ancestors in our own book. So it's a complicated story, and there's good reason that we usually skip it. But you may have noticed, as I started to tell this story to you, that the, the details of the story may sound a little bit familiar. And probably not from last year, Parshat Toldot, right? Probably more from a couple weeks ago, when we read a very similar tale that happened with Isaac's father, Abraham. So in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, um, not long after Abraham hears God's call, lech lecha get up, leave everything you know, go to this place I'm gonna show you. And Abraham is living into his destiny by, by stepping into the land with his family. 
But not long after that, only a few verses later, there's actually a drought in this land that was his inheritance. And so he picks up with his wife and he goes, he leaves. And he goes down to Egypt. And it says explicitly in the Torah, he's afraid that if Pharaoh and the Egyptian men see his beautiful wife, that they will kill him and take his wife. So they uh, concoct, he concocts this plan where he tells Sarah to pretend that she is not the wife, but the sister. And that's what he tells all the men. Oh, she's just my sister, don't worry. Pharaoh um, takes her. She's beautiful and she's single. So he grabs her and, and it's a, a horror story, actually. And only when God causes a plague in Egypt, a plague in Egypt, does, uh, does Pharaoh actually release Sarah. A and I imagine that this must have been absolutely devastating for Sarah. We don't hear about that very much. We don't, we don't talk about it very much. A and yet, as devastating as it was, it's not even the last time that it happened, even for Abraham and Sarah, because then sometime later, just a few chapters later, in fact, for reasons we don't fully understand, Abraham and Sarah again move. This time, not back to Egypt, but to Gerar, where there's a Philistine king named Avimelech. And Abraham concocts a plan in which he says that his wife is actually his sister because he doesn't want to be killed because she's so beautiful. And Avimelech takes his wife and terrible things either happen or almost happen there. What's going on here? What is going on in, in our text? What makes Isaac, a generation after the sin of his father, which was committed twice by his father in his generation, take on that same pattern, make the same fateful error that his father had made? There's clearly an assumption that a pattern, once it's established, has to be upheld even when that pattern causes immeasurable pain, even when it causes incredibly, incredible harm. And I believe that Isaac lacked the faith to believe that he could craft or he could follow his own path. So he tried to repeat his father's path, even though he saw how devastating and how absolutely detrimental it was. After Avimelech calls Isaac out for his deception, the two ultimately reconcile, and Isaac goes out into the Philistine land, and he actually redigs all the wells that his father had originally dug. And even after all of this, after he sees the error of his ways, he goes and he renames the wells. But he doesn't come up with his own names. He names them what his father had named them. He cannot break free from the idea that one generation needs to replicate the sins of the previous generation if we are also to receive the bounty and the blessings of the previous generations. I want to just tell you that when my daughter Sammy was born, and I think she's here somewhere, and I hope she's heard this story before from me. Otherwise, hi, Sam. Hi, Eva. I'm about to tell a story. <laughs> so Sammy was born um, when, when Pasam, my beloved grandfather, um, died when I was seven months pregnant with Sammy. And he was so much the heart of our family. And we fully believed, we expected that Sammy was going to be a little boy and we would name him Sam in memory of grandpa, of, of Pa Sam, my grandfather. And when Sammy came out and the, the doctor took uh, hold of her little body and said, it's a girl. And I burst into tears. And, it, and they weren't only tears of joy. 
And it wasn't only because I had fully expected that Pasam would be embodied in this baby, because I knew and understood that Pasam would still be present in Sammy, no matter who and what she was. But it was because I already had an amazing daughter. And my sister was and is my best friend, but it wasn't always like that when we were little. It took a long time for us to find our way to each other. And the moment that the doctor said, it's a girl, I thought, oh my God, I don't want them to hurt each other. I only want them to love each other. Because I, like Isaac, imagined that the only way that we could really live is somehow within the parameters of the life that we already knew, the life that we had been raised to believe was possible. And now my greatest joy of my life is hearing these two as children like giggle themselves to sleep at night um, because I realized that, that the patterns don't necessarily have to replicate themselves, right? And, and sometimes people can find their way to each other sooner than the generation before them did, and that too is a blessing. But Isaac didn't learn that lesson. Not only did he not learn it in his behavior, but even Bachia reads Isaac's behavior as prescriptive, not just descriptive, but prescriptive. Bachia says, this is the Torah teaching that a person should not deviate unnecessarily from his parents' way. He says, from his father's way. Do what your parents did. You wanna live a good life? Go out and do exactly what your parents did, except that we know that that's not necessarily the right way. Isaac had a failure of imagination because he felt like he could only do what his parents had done. And in that moment, that moment of incredible joy when Sammy was born, I too suffered from a momentary failure of imagination, thinking that it would take them years before they'd find their way to each other when in fact they instantly started to love each other to my great joy. In the little Beit Midrash that lives inside my head, I read Bachia saying that one generation is not to stray from the path of the previous generation. And I hear Bachia seated across the table from Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, who wrote and spoke many times, but most powerfully to my mind, in his commencement address in Oberlin, talking about how there are all too many people who in some great period of social change fail to achieve the new mental outlooks that the new situation demands. They believe that they are called to live within the parameters of the generation before them. And, and we can't really blame them. It's somewhat instinctive. I, I read a piece the other day in The New Yorker that was talking about generational divides and how everybody hails the generation that came of age in the 60s as this bunch of you know, radicals who had totally different views about drugs and body and sex and everything. And in fact, he, we know now that that was only a small percentage of the population. That somewhere between 60 and 85% of young people at that age, they supported the, the war in Vietnam, they believed that the sexual mores of their parents should remain the dominant sexual mores, at least that's what they say in the, in the, the surveys, that actually it's natural for one generation to follow another. What Bachia prescribes is what we naturally do. It's what Isaac naturally did. And yet Dr. King shouts at Bachia across the table and pounds on this table and says, is that really the case and should it be the case? Should we not try to cultivate a different kind of mental outlook that the times require of us, rooted in the, the blessings of our parents and also their failures, rooted in the awareness of what did not work in the generation before? 
And I believe that all of this is top of mind because of what's happening in Glasgow this week. Because there are thousands and thousands of young people from all around the world who have come together in order to demand that this generation does something differently than any generation did before. And, and what they're saying is that they're sick and tired of waiting for the politicians and for the grown-ups to actually make the right choices, to do the right thing in order to protect and save our planet. And what they're asking for is not just that, that our governments do everything, everything in our power to make sure that, that, that cl the climate temperatures do not increase to the point of ensured devastation, but they're actually asking for systemic change. They want to make, make sure that the change that happens will address not only climate, but also racism and also misogyny. They want to make sure that we are looking at a total systems overhaul. Will their voices actually be heard? What they're asking for, what they're demanding, is that we are able to achieve a different mental outlook, one that is required by what we know now, which maybe our parents' generation and certainly our grandparents' generation could not have even fathomed. I raise this today because I believe that the, the crossroads that we're facing, the choice before us, is to do what is both natural according to human nature and is what our very ancestors did, which is repeat and follow the path of those who came before us, or we can make a different choice. The choice that Dr. King was begging us to make 40, 50, 60 years ago, which in this country we started to make and then pulled back as soon as, it, as soon as we could. Are we willing and are we able to acknowledge that in a period of great social change, we, each of us, is required to develop the new mental outlook that this moment demands of us. I read Isaac dressing his beloved wife up as his sister as a profound moral failure, one that ends up really setting the course for the rest of his life, ends up shrinking his heart so that when his son Asaf says to him, really, you don't have anything left for me? Isaac has nothing left. He only knows how to repeat what came before him. But we, we still have something left. We still have time. We still have creative capacity. We have the ability to look lovingly on the past, to receive the blessings, to receive the trajectory, and then to develop the new path forward that this moment absolutely requires of, of us. And I hope and I pray that we have the strength to do so. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ikar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to Ikar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ikar-la.org and give today.